Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. There are now five confirmed cases of COVID-19 coronavirus in New Zealand. Two more probable cases. Can we keep coronavirus contained? This is fitting the pattern of existing spread primarily within families. John Tamahiri is here announcing that I, he's having another crack at politics. This year he will stand for the Māori Party in Tamaki Makoto. He's here live. And then Sir Bob Jones, his time in politics, his solution for our pressing housing problem, plus taking offence at being called a racist. You obviously want to pursue this. If you're going to continue pursuing this, I'll still get up. I'll, I'll ask I you another question I have told you I didn't want to go into this, and well, there was I've a reason for this. I was going to about it, but we begin with COVID-19, so five cases of coronavirus, but all within close families where one family member has been travelling overseas. Joining us this morning with the very latest Health Minister, Dr David Clark. Tēnā koe, good morning. Good morning, Jack. I'm shaking your hand there because we can still shake hands. One of the most important things uh, we can do is make sure that we're not panicking. Another is to make sure that we actually follow good health advice. Wash your hands regularly. Uh, if you've got a cough or cold, stay home. Uh, don't go to work. So uh, carrying on as normal, as long as you're doing those sensible health precautions uh, is something uh, that we think is fine. We are then still in the containment stage. Is it inevitable we will get community spread? It is not inevitable. Um, I'd be really clear on that. The uh, challenge we've got, of course, is that we're seeing more and more countries uh, where coronavirus uh, is spreading. And that means the challenge internationally is growing. And, you know, in Australia, they've got more than 60 cases. Mm. Um, in Germany, they've, you know, jumping up a couple of hundred at a time. And that means that uh, when those people are travelling, um, it's going to spread further in the world. Uh, and as a country, that means uh, we need to redouble our efforts, make sure at the borders we are giving people the information they need, making sure that those who are at risk coming from the hotspots are self-isolating, right. doing those things we know work via the evidence that we've got from scientific experts. With the, with the latest information and data you have then, how likely is it we will have community spread? Well, we think uh, that community spread is not inevitable. Um, the evidence of within family mm. uh, contact being the key uh, vector, 80% of cases, um, that tells us that actually that's the most likely way people are going to pick it up. Um, and if they're following the health advice, doing the right things, mm. if they notice the symptoms, a cough, a cold, like symptoms, if they've got a fever, uh, anything like that, then making sure that they're, they're keeping to themselves. Not that's, inevitable, that's but how likely? Um, look, I, I, I wouldn't get hung up on predictions like that. It's important. We just, I, I just think when, 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 we're, when we're tempering you know, prudence yeah. and panic, yes. it's important for people to know just, just how likely it is that we're going to have a widespread... A, our effort is event. going into keeping it out, and where we do have sporadic cases coming in, making sure that they are stamped out. Um, we expect to have more sporadic cases coming in, and I wouldn't want to gild the lily on that. Um, that is something that's likely to happen. But the likelihood of a community outbreak is low as long as we continue to take the steps we're taking. How, how low? Oh look, I, I couldn't put a number on it and um, I think it would be uh, a crazy thing to try to do. What does your mathematical modelling tell you about 
how many people are likely to be infected if we get to a stage where there is a community spread? Well, the world hasn't really done any uh, good predictive modelling yet. I was actually yesterday looking at uh, what's being done overseas, and there are lots of cautions around the modelling. Um, it depends upon individual responses and individual circumstances, and that's why, as a country, we moved so early. That's brought us this extra mm. time in putting those border restrictions in place. We've got amongst the toughest restrictions in the world. That has certainly brought us time to prepare for these incursions we've been getting and that means we're better prepared than other countries. Are we modelling? Uh, at this stage uh, we've not got any more sophisticated modelling than the rest of the world. I'm not aware of detailed modelling going on, we're focused on the health response. If we get to that stage, how does the public health plan change? For example, would we consider having hospitals or hospital wings that are dedicated to the coronavirus response? Uh, the pandemic um, planning is, um, obviously we work to the pandemic plan we've got, which is well established, comprehensive, um, was updated in 2017 and has been tested since then in exercises in government. Um, we take uh, those things on the medical advice. I I'm taking the medical, the doctor's advice, the scientific experts advice as we go through. We're not at that stage yet. But what do they say about if we get to that stage? Uh, they, they say we should um, take the decisions based on the evidence that we have at that stage. So um, it's very situation specific. And uh, where we have, um, if we do end up with community outbreak anywhere, um, we will look to. Uh, but they must have that considered community. that. I mean, obviously, like you say, we have a pandemic plan in place. And, and as this develops, we, we are adapting our response. So if it gets to that worst case scenario where we have a widespread community outbreak, would we look at, say, sequestering parts of hospitals? for the response? Well look, we've got uh, 263 negative pressure rooms in the country. Uh, we're a long way from anywhere near uh, there of needing those rooms in the hospital. Right. So I think, I think you're talking quite a long way down the track in terms of our response, uh, Jake. At this stage we are focused very heavily on keeping it out of New Zealand and uh, keeping those restrictions in place that we've got that have served us well so far. Why are people panic buying? Uh, look, human behaviour um, is what it is. Um, there have been some, a few unhelpful messages in the media, um, in headlines and uh, a few commentators, but by and large I think the commentary has been sensible. I think people need to uh, think about um, the fact that actually life mostly goes on normally for people, um, but they do need to do those sensible health precautions. Washing hands, the one I said earlier, coughing into your elbows, keeping away from work if you're feeling unwell, uh, if you've got a fever or you're coughing or you've got anything going on mm. in your chest. Those things will help keep all of us safe. It's, it's up to all of us to get through you, this. You say, you say this has been some unhelpful messaging. It was announced on Friday that from tomorrow the amount of prescription paracetamol people can buy will be restricted. We've seen panic buying of paracetamol at supermarkets mm. over the weekends. Why would you give that sort of warning several days before implementing restrictions? Because surely uh, that encourages well, th that there's a, there's a distinction here. So what we're talking about with the paracetamol is a prescription paracetamol. But even the message gets people off to supermarkets buying as much paracetamol as they can. Well, I think, you know, Pharmac and government tends to be transparent in New Zealand. We have a situation where we want to be clear and upfront about any measures that will be taken. Mm. So so uh, right now, Pharmac is uh, saying that doctors can prescribe 300 tablets. Um, you may only be able to pick up 100 at a time. 100 is still quite a lot it's of tablets, going for a and while. it can be waived if need be. So there's no there's no need to um, get. Uh, too concerned. Are there likely to be shortages of other drugs? Well, a lot of the, the basic ingredients for drugs are manufactured in China. 
uh, as I say, we've got, I think it's four months supply mm. of paracetamol um, and the Chinese engine for producing the actual uh, base ingredients for those drugs is ramping up again. In some ways, because of the Pharmac model, we're better served than other places. We have very good infantries because often we have a sole supplier situation. So it's not likely to be a shortage? Um, so no, at this stage, no, we're not predicting a shortage. How is a uh, rock slash metal music concert with thousands of people in attendance considered low risk? given one person there has tested positive yeah. for coronavirus? Um, well, the close contact thing is the, the thing that um, public health officials go off, right? So they, Have you they, been in a mosh pit? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been to rock concerts, and I know that, um, you know, it's not impossible that someone came in in close contact or was at risk, and that's why the public health officials have gone out there and said, here's what happened at the concert. They've this person it low was risk. There. I mean, to, it, it is low risk. You don't like want would be... unnecessary panic, but, it, mm. but you do want enough, enough awareness that people can check themselves if they're feeling a little bit unwell, stay home, call the GP ahead or the health line, get some advice. If it's, it's, likely, it's unlikely, I would say, but if that scenario did uh, exist, we want people to be aware and to, to do the responsible yeah, thing. There are sectors of our economy that are really struggling at the moment, obviously. You, you look at um, hospitality, for example, restaurants are dead at the moment. Should people be getting out? Should people be actively going out and being in public spaces? Well at this stage we don't have a community outbreak so there's no advice that I'm receiving that says people should not be. Only if they're unwell should they not be and that's the really critical point. People need to take some self responsibility here, make sure that if they are unwell with cold or flu, mm. they ought to be doing this anyway with cold or flu, but if they are especially now, make sure they don't go out and uh, put community spread. But this is the thing we're getting advice on all mm. the time. It's a developing situation so we will receive the, the medical advice on these things, the scientific advice and make ongoing assessments. You say that um, one of the points of concern in the response is the spread internationally and the number of people who will be travelling to New Zealand who've been in countries where the uh, outbreak of coronavirus is more significant. Why aren't we taking the temperatures of everyone who arrives in New Zealand as they do in other countries? Yeah, what we know about um, the virus itself is that um, it's typically associated with a high fever. Um, and those people uh, don't, don't look well. We have medical experts at the, at the borders looking out for people who don't look well. But we also know that people are not being allowed onto flights from those hot spots if they are unwell. So but it's but unlikely... Can we be more precise than that? It's very I mean, unlikely. I mean, shouldn't, we have a, shouldn't we have a more of a scientific response? If, this is if a indeed, scientific response. But it's just someone looking, looking at someone saying, oh, you look unwell, as opposed to measuring someone. What, what, I, what I'm, I guess I'm trying to get across, Jake, is that... Um, Oh, Jack, sorry. Uh, is that uh, uh, those people coming in are unlikely to be symptomatic in, in the greater part because people are not allowed on planes mm. if they've got symptoms or temperature. They are not going to have the symptoms when they arrive that in the greater part. Now, that means that providing health advice, which is what the World Health Organization recommends, is the single most effective thing we can do mm. so that people know exactly what to do if symptoms come up for them. So they can do that thing, that self-responsibility thing. Mm. They can make sure that they're in contact with the health line. They can uh, then take the precautions they need to take. Health Minister David Clark, tēnā koe. Thank you for your Thanks, time. Jack. And that dedicated health line number for advice and information on the coronavirus is 0800 358 5453. Anyone who has visited an affected country or anyone developing worrying symptoms, make sure you call that number first or ring ahead to your GP. It's really important that you don't turn up without making a phone call first. We're going to stick with our coverage of COVID-19 coronavirus in a few minutes. The economic impact is being felt. So is it time for the government to ramp up its support for workers and businesses? And then the Māori Party has this morning revealed its candidate to take on Tamaki Makoto. A familiar face in politics, John Tamahiri is here live.
Hoki Mayanor, welcome back. Economists are moving to revise their forecasts as the coronavirus spreads around the globe, and we can expect more revisions as the public health emergency continues to develop and evolve. With the latest on what we should expect, ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zolna, Tenakwe, welcome to Q&A. Uh, we heard there from the Health Minister that it is not inevitable at this stage that we will have a widespread outbreak in New Zealand. But of course, so many sectors of the economy are feeling a significant impact. Do we need a stimulus package now? Well, it is a difficult one. We are having a lot of trouble keeping our forecasts up to date. And, and obviously, that, that same goes for Treasury. They're in the middle of trying to put together a budget. Uh, they're trying to work out, are we in the short, sharp scenario, the slightly worst scenario, or the worst of all? Uh, it, it is very difficult. But in, in our view, uh, this is rapidly changing from a shock that's impacting a few mm. specific businesses and a few specific sectors to something much broader. So yes, in our view, uh, it, the sooner we change to a broad brush approach for fiscal policy, Better. Okay, I want to talk to you about some of the options uh, that that broad brush approach might uh, include. Grant Robertson, uh, the finance minister, told us last week he'd be waiting till the May budget to finalise any sort of stimulus package. Is that too late? Does the government need to be doing more at this minute? Well, the problem is this thing is, is exponential, um, not in New Zealand yet, fortunately, as we've heard, but in many countries globally it is on that path. And what that means is that every week things are moving twice as fast as they did the week before. So it's mm. fair to say that in that kind of world, May is a very, very long time away. Uh, and clearly we're going to have a sharp growth slowdown in our trading partners, at least. Now, that is a shock we've seen before, and we know how it feeds through. It doesn't tend to uh, go very well. Mm. Um, and, and typically the government does sort of need to step up. There are the automatic stabilizers but they're kind mm. of the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff they kick in once people have lost their jobs for example uh, but the problem is if we do get into a scenario where people are changing their behaviors and staying at home a lot more how do you stimulate the economy when when people aren't behaving normally it's actually a, a very very difficult question how do you well I think we really have to set yourself up to accelerate out the other side. Uh, so obviously there's a large infrastructure program already. Um, as long as we can get the building parts mm. to do that from China, which there are now question marks around, uh, that kind of thing can really underpin the medium term, uh, mean that firms are still gearing mm. up for that, a bit of certainty in the pipeline where it can be provided. But that, that, that's, uh, I mean, 18 months down the track, isn't it? I mean, if, if we are requiring stimulus, as of this minute, before the May budget, what sort of things could the government consider? I know that Business New Zealand is calling for wage subsidies like we had uh, after the Canterbury and Kaikoura earthquakes, for example. I think the tax system is, is very powerful. I guess for these sorts of shocks where you know they could be quite nasty, but they should be fairly short, uh, the focus sorts needs to be on uh, helping the businesses that are sound mm. to get through what is essentially a period of potentially extreme disruption. Uh, so the tax system, you can defer provisional tax, uh, that, that kind of thing. Maybe you could lower tax rates very hard to reverse that sort of thing. Fiscal policy should ideally be uh, timely, targeted and temporary. But in our view, the government debt target, probably it's maybe a good time to, to actually think about that, about whether that is really mm. going to be in the economy's long-term interests over the next little while. It is um, extremely conservative on an international comparison. What happens if we have a widespread community outbreak? Well, that is the everything, everywhere shock. <laughs> I mean, it's normally uh, the, as on the way up or the way down, things start in the export sector, ripple through manufacturing, gradually feed into employment and then into services and mm. consumption and then finally into employment. Uh, but this would be different. This would be a, a, a sharp shock, shock to every sector of the economy. So you can't sort of do business by business piecemeal measures in, in that kind of environment. Um, you have to just... 
<laughs> I don't know what you do. That is the challenge. Uh, this, this is a very, very difficult shock to stimulate um, the economy, but you can just try and help us muddle through it and, mm. and accelerate out the other side. You mentioned uh, debt levels relative to other countries. New Zealand's debt is low. Are we in a good position? For the worst case scenario? Yes, in a relative sense New Zealand is, is very well placed. Our government debt is extremely low, particularly when you take the super fund and think about it in a net way. Uh, our, our corporate debt's actually also pretty low. Our balance sheets are in good shape mm. and I'll draw a contrast there with say the United States. We have very high levels of corporate debt uh, raising a lot of concern. We do have high household debt but it's only just a smidgen higher than it was in 2007. It's not as if people have gone completely crazy. So overall as a nation that gives us options uh, that many other countries would love to have. We've also got uh, a freely floating exchange rate which typically in times of global trouble drops through the floor and mm. delivers a really meaningful monetary easing. Not so clear that will happen this time because it's not clear that New Zealand's actually worse off than anybody else in this kind of shock. But typically that's a really important shock absorber. What is the role of banks in all of this? Well, banks do play a natural role in, in helping their customers through uh, these kinds of events. You know, the, obviously the disruption with the Christchurch and Kaikoura earthquakes, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but banks are uh, a very, very important part of the economy. We have seen a little bit of a squeeze on credit in the last year already. We were thinking about that as a, as a constraint on growth, but now it's uh, if in, in a time when the economy's not going so well, it's perhaps um, more of a problem. And there's a whole range of reasons for that. Part of it is that deposit growth has been mm. so low. If you don't have the money coming in, you can't grow your lending going out so much. Um, so we, we may see some behaviours change as, as people realise equities are actually quite a volatile investment. Will you be more forgiving for indebted customers? Oh, I'm not in part, that part of the bank. It's not, <laughs> not up to me. I'm not even privy to those conversations. Um, the, the worst hit areas of the economy, like you say, are feeling it now. We're looking at the likes of tourism, education, uh, exporters. What other industries have we overlooked at this stage or what other industries could expect a significant hit if this worsens? Well clearly so far it's been an export shock, an unusual export shock in that it's been primarily to logistics rather than price. We've right. never had question marks about whether we can get our goods to market before, that's, that's very unusual. Uh, but clearly prices are dropping. Uh, but it's spreading now into potentially d uh, the hospitality sector and obviously tourism mm. as well. Uh, down the track we could run into problems with our imports um, and, and that is a very unusual shock. So and we, of course we think about China imports as, as t-shirts that you know, millennials wear once and throw away. But actually, we import more intermediates and capital goods from China than we do consumption goods. So right. for the building sector, you know, building materials, uh, for, the, um, for manufacturing, a whole lot of plastics and a whole lot of stuff that goes into a lot of stuff that we make. Um, also for farming, those are three sectors that are really, really reliant mm. on goods from China to keep producing. So we have stocks, obviously, so this is a problem for, for down the track. But if China's factories don't get mm. back in action and their logistics chains don't unfreeze, uh, then we could have issues down the track. You are forecasting uh, the Reserve Bank will cut when they have the opportunity, if not sooner. If you had the finance ministers here, though, what would be your message? Yes, good luck, I think I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know that that's going to help business confidence. Yeah. No, no, it's, it is a very difficult shock to manage because yeah. it is unlike any shock we've seen before and so the policy response is going to have to also be mm. unusual, I, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I would certainly say we haven't got a lot of time to sit back and, and think about this because the impacts are hitting much more quickly than we normally think about things in a macroeconomic sense. I think we're all scrambling mm. uh, to keep up with this one. So, 
Yes, it's a good idea to think things through, but in this case we may have to think fast. Sharon Zollner, tēnā thanks for your time and expertise. We're keen to hear your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us at q and at tvnz.co.nz. After the break, John Tamahiri confirmed as the Māori Party's candidate in Tamaki Makaurau. Will the Māori Party be king or queenmaker come the September election? And despite the Prime Minister's strong stand on 501 deportees, the Australian Government is looking to get even tougher. That's something that really causes us significant concern because right now in our immigration detention centres, uh, New Zealand makes up the second largest group. Welcome back. The Māori Party is plotting a comeback after Labour won back all seven Māori seats at the last election. Today they've announced their most high-profile candidate yet. You'll know him as a former Labour Minister, a former mayoral candidate and current Chief Executive of the Whanau Order Commissioning Agency, John Tamahere Tēnākoe. Welcome to Q&A. You're standing in Tamaki Makaurau. Why? Oh, look, I've worked for about 35 years out in the communities um, trying to put in programmes and policies to lift um, Māori to be out of, out of some difficult places to be positive and progressive citizens. And uh, whānau ora, um, in many iterations we've tried, um, but this works. Um, and you've got a government uh, that has a minister that hasn't once supported it. Um, our leadership, our woman leadership, uh, our dames um, assailed the Prime Minister over that. They've just had a response back from her <coughs> endorsing uh, Mr Henari's approach to final order. This is Penny Henari. Yeah, and so uh, it's a it's a sense of betrayal of um, mm. our people up and down the country because mm. it's been audited, reviewed. It's the only policy in the whole suite of government that works for us. To be clear, the government is still funding final order, but it's the structure through which they're funding final order well, which the you thing. are concerned about. Yep. So why this seat? You're standing against Penny Henari. Mm. He has a majority of uh, three thousand eight hundred votes as per the last election? Yes. Well, um, the Māori Party has always had a base vote of 50% minimum uh, in every election uh, and in previous elections obviously took the seat. I lost it when I was in Labour. Um, so it's got a very solid base. I, I actually have lived and worked in that uh, community uh, from the get-go and so I'm very well known the present incumbent hasn't. So, you know, I, it's going to be a doozy but um, you, uh, the Māori voice gets subsumed in mm -hmm. Labour because the command and control system of Labour National Act is a non-Māori control mechanism. Is this just a personal vendetta? Uh, about? With you and Penny Henare, the Minister. Oh no, look, I think if you go back, uh, you could ask the same question, is it a personal vendetta against Gough? I think that's unfair. What's fair is, is that we have a major contest of ideas. I'm a great believer uh, in the modern era and devolution into the communities. They um, want state control. Right. Uh, I should note that Marama Davidson from the Greens is also standing in yeah. Tamaki Makoto. But I want to talk about a coalition positioning. Shay Wilson, the Māori Party president, expressed a definite preference for Labour earlier this year. So if the Māori Party were to win back a seat or uh, some mm. MPs, he says they would stay with Labour. Is that how the Māori Party is positioning itself? No, no, I think um, what we've got to do, um, and that might have been a tad premature, but uh, what we've got to do is... Why was that premature? Well, you've got to concentrate on connecting back into your own community and winning your community's uh, support. I think the community needs to know where you stand, who you're going to support. No, the community needs to know that we are the sole advocate for them. That's point one. Two, we've got to win the seats. 
when you no, win... They need to know who you're going to no, stand for, though. No, no, when you win the seats, you, you, I don't know, because here's my problem, mm. uh, I don't know uh, how Parker people are going to vote, how Island people are going to vote, right? So, so, you, so Labor or National? You have to ask that of them. Yeah, Labor or National? Oh, well, neither of them have been great, right? So, so it's the best of, it's the best of what, what devil. Now, that's a bad uh, question to put and pose. You don't know until all the votes are in. OK, I, I'm going to read you something here. Uh, a new Māori party sounds good and promises much, but we need to ask its leaders some hard questions about uh, what and how it can really deliver. First, who is it prepared to go into coalition with? You know who asked that question? Yeah, me. You did. <laughs> that was you. Yeah. But so I, was, I want to know, uh, Labour or no, but, I, but here's the thing. Um, I ran the ball up hard for my team. I was in the Labour Party team when that question was asked. I made a mistake, right? I got assimilated and I got subjugated. And I know what, um, I know what assimilation looks like. And I was a bit of a sellout. I accept that. Uh, so um, I was wrong. I was wrong, then uh, I've now crystallised a different position and a better informed position. Um, is the party getting any support from National? None that I know of. Are you being supported by Michelle Bogue? No, but Michelle is a friend. See, in New Zealand, we're a small country and we're two degrees of separation. Mm. And uh, I, just because you're in the National Party doesn't mm. mean I dislike you. OK, I, I just want to be really clear, though. Are you open to working with either Labour or National? Well, you have to be, because they uh, ultimately, an uh, MMP governments, have had the majority-minority votes to work with. Could you work with Winston Peters? Um, I, I think that's probably highly unlikely. But um, <clears throat> once again, you'd have to ask Mr Peters. And he advocates for scrapping the Māori seats. If it gets to a, yeah, uh, but he always does. <laughs> if, it gets to, if it gets to a state where you where you are in a position to go into coalition negotiations, would you work with them? Oh, look, um, that is something I don't have a gift to give you to today, because I've just been endorsed mm. by the leadership of the Māori Party and the people of Tamaki Makaurau. So there's a, a few more conversations that need to be had. Do you want to be co-leader? No, and that's uh, not the way uh, our people operate is, is that our people will say that. Uh, I can't seize on that and it's unbecoming for me to do that. If I was in the Labour Party, I'd say, yeah, hell yeah, I want to be the boss. <laughs> but, but in the Māori Party, you, you, you just can't do that and so there's a different process. Who's funding the Māori Party? Uh, our people are funding uh, the Māori Party at the moment. Look, here's, here's the beauty about the Māori Party. Uh, we're not for sale to any sector group. We're not for sale to any rich uh, Pākehā donors. Uh, but so you're not taking any corporate donation, uh, donations? No, 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 we want honesty. So if people want to donate to the Māori Party, and there's only two third parties that can form the next government, it'll be New Zealand First or the Māori Party, uh, and so there's only two horses in that race. The other two blocks have mm. bespoken. So, so basically, um, we will take funding so long as you're honest enough to put your name on it. How is this Māori Party different from the party headed... Uh, by Tūruru of Flavel and Tariana Turia, for example? Oh, um, all parties um, have to evolve over time. Uh, it's a young party. It was born in 2004. Uh, and in that sense, uh, um, won its first seat uh, in 2004 with Tariana. Uh, and um, it's, it, it gestates like all sorts of things. So where is it now? Well, we, we're in, for the reasons I've outlined in my um, speech to uh, the party faithful yesterday, um, th there is one nation, but there's two classes of citizenship, you know, you know uh, for white first class, brown second class. That, that's, that can't continue to exist in this country, and we have to fix it. And um, you're only going to fix it with an authentic and Māori advocacy. And what does that mean? Well, that means, uh, all the, that means whānau ora cannot be destroyed by stealth uh, with a Prime Minister that talks about well-being and with a Prime Minister that talks about poverty.
shift and changes. You can't have 30,000 young Māori aged between 14 and 24 not on an education, training or employment because they've got nowhere else to go but to gangs and to prisons. So is whānau water your number one priority? Well, we ha as a country have to say to our Pākehā brothers and sisters that we need your help mm. to lift ourselves but we don't need you standing over us, regulating us all the time. We're um, big enough now. Change comes from within. And uh, to Māori, by Māori, for Māori change. We cannot assert standards and values in our communities unless our leadership does. A Pākehā leadership can't and will never get carried. JT, do you have the discipline to run a successful campaign? Well, I don't know about that, but what, I, what I'll tell you this is, is that I, I tell the truth. Okay, so I always get into trouble for that. So I'd rather have a lack of diplomacy and tell the truth uh, rather than being uh, uh, um, dodgy with it, right? And so I do get into a bit of strife, um, uh, even at home with my marriage, so, so the, by telling the truth. So, so um, I err on the side of uh, honesty as opposed to uh, dressing it up in grey zones. What did that mayoral campaign last year, you lost by 100,000 votes to yeah. Philgoff, what did that teach you? Oh, that um, on a 34% turnout, um, 180,000 people, regardless of Phil Goff, it's not the name, vote for incumbency because they're doing very well out of a... Well, what did it teach you about your own behaviour, though? Oh, I had a lot of fun in it. And I'm going to have a lot of fun on this one. <laughs> so, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you put the question... Well, no, I'm just... I'm, I'm, I, you know, there, there were moments where critics would have suggested you, you were perhaps ill-disciplined in that campaign. Oh, yeah, but you see, um, here's the problem I've got. Um, because I have the audacity and the temerity to stand... And to, and to express myself mm. uh, as a working-class West Aucklander uh, and a Māori to boot, um, you, you get hammered for it in uh, this day of social media and the like. So I, I, I am who I am. I'm, I'm out of a working-class... Uh, I've got 12 brothers and sisters, I've got six kids, so I'm, I, I bring that flavour. OK, then. Come late September, if you don't get a seat, are you done? Is that politics for you? No, I, I'm always about the journey, Jack. What does that mean? Well, you're a long time dead. So um, if you, you can sit back on the couch... And you, can, and you can bemoan things, or you can get off the couch and make change. And so even in that mayoral uh, race, change came through a robust uh, a contest. And that's what democracy is about, a robust contest. And whether you like it or not, it's got to be uh, a contesting, and change comes out of that. All right. John Tamahiri, the Māori Party candidate in Tamaki Makoto. Tēnā koe. Thank you for your time. All right, this week's One Thing on Q&A comes from Auckland Masters student Arizona Ledger. Arizona represented New Zealand at the G20 in Japan last year. That's the Girls' 20 Summit. She was the Indigenous delegate for Aotearoa. We asked her to come up with the one thing she would do to make New Zealand a better place. And here's what she said. My name is Arizona Ledger and the one thing that I would do is provide free and equal and good quality access to education for our young people. The reason that I would do that is because if we are able to provide this access and resource, we're able to unlock their full potential and if we do that, what a crazy and influential time it'll be for Aotearoa. So I'm all for it and I hope that other people will be too because the bigger we make the circle, the more we can enjoy the benefits of an amazing and resourceful New Zealand. Arizona Ledger, let us know what you think of her one thing. After the break, Jacinda Ardern told her Australian counterpart not to deport his country's problems. But the Aussies are trying to make their deportation laws even stronger. And a wide-ranging interview with Sir Bob Jones. They'll do the whole lot within two years. It's problem solved. And, I mean, so why not? Send back Kiwis. 
genuine Kiwis, do not deport your people and your problems. If you're convicted, once you've done your time, we send you home. Despite that tough talk from Jacinda Ardern, the Australian government now wants to expand its powers to deport people born in New Zealand. The controversial Australian policy already allows the government to deport people who've been sentenced to more than 12 months in prison, regardless of how long they've lived in Australia. But Scott Morrison's government now wants to expand that so that anyone convicted of a crime with a potential sentence of two years or more can also be deported. Now that includes children. And I asked Australian Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santo why he thinks the Australian government is getting even tougher. Well, Australia has had a policy for a long time now um, that uh, anyone with a significant criminal record or even just a criminal connection um, who's not an Australian citizen will be sent back to their original country. And so there's been, I guess, incremental steps along the way to tighten and tighten those laws. Why do they need to extend them? Well, we say that uh, those laws are already very strict and that they shouldn't be extended. Uh, I guess what the Australian government says is that uh, any risk to the community um, of a criminal um, causing harm is unacceptable. Um, of course we would accept the idea that uh, you, you can deport uh, the most dangerous non-citizens from um, our country, but what we would also say is you have to have a sense of proportion. So there are people who are not dangerous criminals who are being removed from Australia, and that can have a terrible, devastating impact, not just on them as individuals, but also mm. on their families. Almost 2,000 New Zealanders have been deported since these laws came into place in 2014. Is there any way of knowing exactly how many New Zealand-born people might be affected if these laws are indeed extended? We don't know the precise figure, but the Australian Department of Home Affairs has said that if this uh, legislation goes through, they expect that there will be uh, a larger number of people who will be able to be removed from Australia. Uh, and that's something that really causes us significant concern because right now in our immigration detention centres, uh, New Zealand makes up the second largest group of uh, people, non-citizens, who are being detained. To be clear, under this legislation as it is proposed, children would be eligible for deportation? Yeah, you could have a range of people, not just uh, adults, but also younger people as well, uh, who could be deported. Can you tell us then, what are your main concerns with the 501 clause as it stands? So uh, that provision was uh, introduced basically to protect our community from some of the most hardened criminals that could cause the Australian community harm. And we accept that general principle. But over time, it's been expanded and expanded. And now uh, it's, it's not even necessary that someone has committed an offence. Uh, the government might form the view that someone is at risk of uh, committing crime in Australia or might have some association with a criminal organisation and that would be enough to remove them from Australia. What we say is it's a very, very significant act to send someone 
away from Australia, particularly if they've been here for a significant period of time. And you need to take a, a, a more holistic approach where you take into account what is the true risk to the Australian community, but also what is going to be the negative impact on the individual who's deported and uh, their friends their, and particularly their family and especially their dependent um, children if they have any here. Our Human Rights Commissioner says disproportionately Māori and Pacific Island people are being deported from Australia to New Zealand and that shows some sort of ethnic bias. Would you agree with that? Well, it's certainly the case that when we uh, inspect immigration detention centres, we see a, a, a significant proportion of uh, Maori um, and Pacific Islander people in those uh, detention centres. Uh, we don't um, have access to the statistics, so we can't be certain about that. But, but unquestionably, um, there's a there's a large number of Maori. What are conditions like in those detention centres? So Australia's immigration detention centres are tough places to spend time. Uh, the first thing to be aware of is that over the last few years they've become more and more like a typical prison. And so what that means is that um, you'll generally have uh, two people in um, a room, which is like a, a cell. Um, they'll often be in bunk beds uh, and those, those rooms are, are, are quite small. Mm. Um, most commonly, there is no divide in that room between uh, where you're sleeping, uh, there's no, no door or anything like that mm. between where you sleep, and where you actually go to the bathroom. Um, so um, just to be really explicit about it, you, you, you'll have a toilet um, and maybe a shower facility that um, there's no actual formal dividing door or wall between um, those, those two places. So, so that's the kind of thing that makes those places really quite difficult environments. Uh, and um, yes, you can have visitors um, come, uh, including family, uh, but they're not the most um, uh, easy places for um, having uh, family and particularly kids mm. come and spend some time. I mean, I've got young children myself. I wouldn't want um, to, to have my own kids there coming regularly and frequently because it's not the kind of environment that you would generally want to keep kids in. Whether in the detention centres or in the broader deportation process, are people's human rights being breached? So we've got real concerns about uh, people's human rights in the detention centres themselves. And the, the first problem is uh, that the average period that someone is held in an Australian immigration detention centre right now is approximately 496 days. That is a huge, huge period. It's many orders of magnitude greater than uh, any other comparable country of the world. Just, just by way of comparison, the, the average period mm. that someone might be detained in an immigration detention centre in Canada is just over 12 days. And we're at 496. So that's, that's the first problem. The second problem is that the longer that you spend in an immigration detention facility, the harder it is to maintain good health good mental health and, and general wellbeing. And so what we see in our immigration detention inspections is that there are increasing problems the longer that people mm. stay there, particularly when it comes to their health and mental health and their connections to their close family and the people that, that love them. At this stage, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is maintaining a hardline stance. So what options do you have? Well, so we have primarily the powers of persuasion. 
uh, we can say really clearly what we see um, through our immigration detention uh, inspection processes and we can mm. also comment as we've done in the parliament itself on proposals for changing our law. Let me ask um, this though, ultimately does, the it's a decision Australian for public, government, though. does the Australian public care? I think they do. I think they do. I, I think people understand um, that uh, Australia has long had quite strong border protection laws and policies um, and they are to, to keep the community safe. But my sense when, when I speak to people in the community, as I have been all morning today, is that people also want a sense of balance and proportion. Uh, and um, we have always been a country that have welcomed uh, immigrants and we, we need to make mm. sure that in protecting our community we're not having a disproportionate um, effect that's causing harm on some groups. Balance and proportion was the request from New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, of course, when she met with her Australian counterpart. Is that likely to have any impact on this government's plans? Well, I mean, I'm not a political animal and those political questions are way above my pay grade. All I can say is that the principle of this is fundamentally important. Australia is always a country that has spoken, uh, I think, very powerfully about the importance of freedom, equality and human rights. Um, and we always have to be held to account to make sure that we're living up to those values. And I think it's, it's really, really helpful that in, in international forums like the United Nations that Australia is held to account. Here in New Zealand, the main opposition party, National, says it would consider implementing a similar law in New Zealand that would see people who were born in Australia deported back to Australia unless Australia relaxes its policy. What would you think of that approach? Well, obviously I can't comment on uh, New Zealand politics. That would get me into uh, more trouble than I'm uh, already used to. But what I can say is that New Zealand has a, a really interesting um, set of laws right now, which essentially say that the longer you've been in New Zealand, um, the, the harder it is to deport you because it recognises that the longer that you're in a country, the more ties you have to that country and the, the, the greater harm it will cause if you are deported. So we have said to the Australian Parliament that that is precisely the sort of law that we should be looking at because it's more balanced, it's more proportionate and it's better able to protect the Australian community while uh, without causing too much harm to others. After the break on Q&A, Sir Bob Jones and the 1984 revolution. His New Zealand party helped to oust Sir Robert Muldoon, but why Sir Bob Jones hated almost every moment of it. And our political quiz, can you tell me what percentage of the vote the New Zealand party got in that pivotal election? Hawke Mayanor, welcome back. For more than 40 years, Sir Bob Jones has been one of the more colourful and controversial characters in New Zealand business and politics. As a commercial property developer with a fortune approaching $1 billion, we were interested in his solutions for the housing crisis. As a former friend and foe of Sir Robert Muldoon, we were interested in his memories of the late Prime Minister in the 1984 election. And of course we wanted to ask about his recent legal action against filmmaker Renee Maihi, who believed a column that Jones wrote about Te Ao Māori was racist. Now, to be clear, we didn't want to relitigate the case or ask Sir Bob Jones for his opinions on Māoridom, but we did want to know why Sir Bob Jones suddenly ended the legal proceedings, and if upon reflection he believed the legal action was appropriate. We sat down and he poured himself a glass of wine.
1984. Sir Bob Jones is on the campaign hustings with the New Zealand Party. We'll take anyone's donation, Richard. We took yours and we're quite happy to take others. <laughs> and he's hating it. What would you have done if you won? What would you have done oh, if you winning became was never going, Winning was never in the issue. Well, of course, I was not suited to be an MP. The last thing I wanted to do was be an MP. Um, we were advancing a pretty radical program, mm. all of which we duly watched. And people think of it in terms of economics. It went beyond that. Jones's libertarian policies split the vote, handing power to Labor and ending Robert Muldoon's reign as Prime Minister. To what extent was your campaign motivated by your relationship with Muldoon? Uh, it was tempered by it because I had, I had quite a close relationship with him. There's a bit of the roots in that go back to 1972. Um, and, you know, I have enormous admiration mm. for him. I've known every Prime Minister with the exception of Kirk, who was an absolute prick, incidentally. I'll tell you why in a minute. But, and his own people from that era will tell you the same. But the Muldoon was, was a, a terrific bloke, but he just his timing was wrong. Did Muldoon see you as a traitor at that time? Well, I recently, somebody sent me something, a post-1984 National Party inside thing. They couldn't understand why Rob would, wouldn't attack me. I never attacked him either. We, we Little jibes. He always called it the Jones Party, that sort of thing. You know, it was always little jibes, but I never even personalised it. So Bob Jones hasn't voted in most elections since the advent of MMP, and compared to the period before the Rogenomics reforms, he thinks modern politics are innocuous. We took it much further ahead than anywhere else. But one of the things that characterised it uh, was that before then, everybody had a lot of time on their hands. The quality of life in any material sense wasn't very good. Um, there were controls on everything and so on. Uh, restaurants were bad, all that sort of thing. There was no competition, but everyone had a lot of time. So they had time to have fun. And we didn't have a lot of fun. Everybody works hard now, works long hours, this sort of thing. And that has a consequence in the political scene. Jones was at pains to point out to us he's not a billionaire yet. And though he specialises in commercial property investments, he sees a simple but radical solution to New Zealand's affordable housing crisis. Uh, it's pretty easy to resolve. First, you, you, we don't want to build a great bloody state housing town. But you grab bunches of land, you set them all up, you build a whole lot of things there. Who builds them? You get the Chinese contractors that come and they build very well. Mm. They'll come, they'll work seven days a week, they'll work 12 hours a day because the chaps want to go back in with all this money. The, you know, the Chinese, mm. the best thing ever happened to this country, the Chinese coming here. There's massive contractors, huge contracts in China. They would fly in in jumbo jets. They would quickly build accommodation for these buggers. They'd knock up whole towns quickly. We were building more houses in the 60s than we've been building in recent years. We would have, how many houses do you want? 20,000, they'll deliver we them in about 84 months. Yeah. They'll, they'll do the whole lot within two years. It's problem solved. And, I mean, so why not? We've got a shortage of everything in New Zealand at the moment. Now, mm. we're going into a fairly serious recession, uh, which is unavoidable. Uh, but that's going to be relatively short. Two years it'll all be over through the virus. You know, I mean, New Zealand's going to take quite a big hit. Mm. Rotorua, Queenstown, this sort of thing. And then the flow on the airlines, they're going to have to bail in New Zealand out, I would say, this year. Mm. Uh, but that'll be going on all over the world. It, it, the economic Im, uh, impact of this thing, mm. but such is life, you know.
Last month, Sir Bob Jones abandoned his high-profile defamation case against filmmaker Renee Maihi. Maihi had launched a petition to strip Jones of his knighthood after he penned a column which she believed was racist. But after several days in court, Jones ended the proceedings. Tell me about the moment in your defamation case where you realised you wanted to stop, that you wanted to... Well, wanted I'm not going to talk about that, as I told you. It wasn't a question I wanted to stop. I didn't want to stop. So I'm not going to talk about that. Why uh, didn't you want to stop? Because there was a confidential agreement we wouldn't talk about it. Um, no, I didn't want to stop. You know, I was outraged by what happened. But... Uh, why, why, were you, why were you outraged by it? Well, the whole thing was uh, fabrication. Why defamation action, though? Why did I sue? Yeah. I had a woman conducting a campaign against me, calling me a racist? Me? Good God, I spend millions every year uh, on other races mm. uh, with all the various things I do. And what I've done, we started listing all the things I've done for married them and individual things, this sort of... And what I've been working on for nine months mm. before that. Oh, to hell with it, then. I said, to hell with it. At 80 years of age, not wasting my time on marriage. But they can... Uh, they, I mean, heaps of marriages wanted to give evidence for me on that, but the point is, it should never have got to that. She, it was a disgrace that the media allowed her to do these things. But when I see the venom and hatred, oh, he's a racist, me, a racist. Christ, I've got children by a multitude of racists. They all get on famously. Can you see hypocrisy in being deeply offended by someone who has been offended by your comments? No, there's no hypocrisy. She was a show pony. Uh, I, obviously, I believe in free speech. I don't believe in def defamation and libeling of people. That's all. There's a difference. But can I read you something? You said, I filed these proceedings because I was deeply offended by Miss Mahi's allegations. Mm. But then in court, you said, how much do we tolerate ridiculous offence taking? Yeah, so that's another you're, issue, of You're course. taking offence at her taking offence. So some people would look no. at that and say that's how, how? hypocrisy. I didn't take offence at her taking offence. I took her offence at calling me, of all people, a racist. The last person in this country to call a racist that, that got that offence, by a multitude she, of racists. She believes your comments were... I, there's were, a difference. ...were racist. Yeah, I, but they weren't racist. The, the fundamental point here is that you have been offended by someone being offended. You don't seem to get it. It's not bloody hard. You're free to... I agree in freedom of speech, but you, that's not a freedom to bloody libel people. It's not hard. That's the difference. She ran up and down the country campaigning, I'm a racist. Anyone that knows me, I'm the least racist person. Can you accept that it's not necessarily up to you to decide whether or not you are racist? That's and an absurd proposition. Do you think it was fair to undertake a defamation suit, given the vast imbalance between your financial resources. I see, so I'm a rich man, therefore I have to turn the other cheek. Is that what you say? That's pretty stupid. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm merely suggesting that if it's a contest of ideas, then that's one thing. But this isn't necessarily a fair play. So I must it. turn the other cheek. They can come out saying no, no, I'm a pedophile and say what they like. No, but no, you... no. I'm, I'm, I'm merely asking that if a more appropriate place to challenge Renee Maihi and her offence at your comments might have been an environment where she didn't have to stress about finding tens of thousands of dollars oh, to launch We're wasting our time. We, let's just drop the subject. I think this is just silly. I will not turn the other cheek to people who do that. Simple as that. And not only that, uh, it's just an absurd over-the-top reaction to quite a good joke that would have gone down well in any sophisticated society. Why did you stop then? 
If you're so that's, sure of your position. Uh, I said, told you, I'm not going into that. There was a reason that, that uh, so I'm not going to go into it. With agreement with the parties. Do, do you accept, though... Um, well, look, you obviously want to pursue this. If you're going to continue pursuing this, I'll still get up. I'll, I'll ask I you another question I have told you I don't want to go into this, and well, there was I've a reason because there was an agreement. I've told you I was going to ask you about it, though. No, you've mainly laboured this point, so I'm not commenting anymore, all right? Okay. Do you think you, is, oh, you should be in the print media? We used to that sort. Well, I mean, you're dishonest. I told you I, told you I was going to ask you Yes, you told me that. I told uh, you've you done three quarters this. of this on that. Well, I, if if I had the answer, your heart then I would lies move with print, doesn't it? No, no. Yes, my it heart does. does not yes, lie it does. In the eyes of many, Sir Bob Jones is a curious study in contrasts. He maintains his views on Māoridom, but for several years has poured money into scholarships and education for refugees. Should New Zealand be doing of more for refugees? Of course we should. It's outrageous. I mean, I could hear it down. Look what's going on in Syria. Uh, it's just appalling. Syrians are nice people. I know Syria. It's just terrible uh, what's going on everywhere. And also in Central America, an area also know. It's terrible. And we should be, and we're not doing it. We should be, buddy, well, even if it's token 500 families, you know, and bring them in. They're terrific people. How, how much do you spend on refugees in Well, the cost doesn't matter to us. And here we've spent millions, but I've told them to lift it. But my son is doing stuff with the Syrians and Afghanis and that mm. in Athens. I mean, we can afford to do it, mm. so of course we'll do it. But mm. I'm, I would like to do something in Central America. It's an area I know, and it's a cultural aspect there, the way women are treated, you mm. know. And, um, and we will do this stuff, because mm. um, we can do it. Mm. But we can't save the world, but we can help one or two people, yeah, some people. Sir yeah. so Bob Jones speaking to me in Porneke, Wellington, this week. Now, remember the infamous incident in which he punched reporter Rod Vaughan after Vaughan interrupted his fly fishing? Well, Jones told me after our interview he doesn't go fly fishing anymore because he thinks it's cruel. Right then, the answer to our quiz this morning. The New Zealand party failed to win any seats, but did get 12.25% of the vote in the 1984 election. That was in the days before MMP, of course, so there wasn't much you could do with that. Once Labour took power, though, Roger Douglas adopted many of the New Zealand party's policies around the liberalisation of the economy. Kumutu, that's us for this week. Thank you for watching. And mihi kia koto inga karere. Thanks for your messages and contributions. Q&A is back next week from 9 o'clock. But we're going to leave you this morning with Jeanette Fitzsimons. The former Greens co-leader died on Thursday. She has been remembered by those of all political stripes as a woman of principle and integrity. Moi maira. It's been 13 years, Mr Speaker, since I had the great privilege of giving the first Green speech in the New Zealand Parliament. We don't expect to dictate terms when we have 5% of the public support. By the time February came, I was so impatient to get started that on my first day I leapt to my feet and blurted, Supplementary Speaker, Mr Question. <laughs> I have sat here for 13 years weeping at the tragedy of so many people wasting the precious gift of life, chasing the mirage of a bigger GDP. The Green Movement is growing stronger worldwide. Kia kaha, you are the hope of the future.